Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. On Thursday, August 25, 2016, Alice Wisner, Legislative Analyst with the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Waukee Chief of Police John Quinn. They discussed Chief Quinn's career path through the Department of Public Safety as a special agent, being the division head of the Division of Criminal Investigations at the Department of Public Safety, his retirement and current role as Chief of Police for Waukee. They also discussed the changes in policing over the years as well as the advent of technologies including DNA and body cameras. This is Alice Wisner from the Legislative Services Agency and I am talking with Chief John Quinn of the Waukee Police Department. So the first question I wanted to ask you was what brought you into a career in law enforcement and I know that your father was in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that was a big influence on you, and I'll let you take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me today. It's, it truly is an honor and a privilege. And what drew me to law enforcement? That's an easy one. Grew up in a law enforcement family. My dad was in the FBI, and uh, we moved every five years back when Hoover was in the office. So I have sisters that were born in Denver. I was born in L.A. with some of my sisters. I have another sister who was born in Detroit, Michigan, and then, of course, we moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey, where ultimately my dad's last home office was at. So that environment, meeting all of the fellow agents, the brotherhood there. Uh, one of the things about when my dad was in the FBI, a quick little story about him was that he went undercover and was infiltrating the mob in New York City. We were living in Detroit, Michigan at the time, and we didn't see him for two years. And every Thursday, we had two minutes because he had five kids at the time and we could spend two minutes talking to him and then the rest of my mom could talk to him but the thing about it was that every day an FBI agent would stop by our house just making sure that everything was okay and that my mom had everything that she needed that there weren't any questionable subjects that were approaching her or anything that she noted that was out of the norm so finally they uh, broke the case and it went to trial my dad said hey you gotta move my family closer to me or I'm just going to go ahead and retire. So they, next thing I know is there's a moving van and all the kids are jumping in a car and we're heading to Atlantic City, <laughs> New Jersey. So That's it, quite the story. It is. There's other stories I could tell too, <laughs> but uh, we'd have to edit out quite a bit of it. But And that's where I got the passion from. It's a calling. I've always had that desire, I think, to get into law enforcement, at least give it a try. And ultimately, I was given that opportunity. So, but yeah, my dad had the greatest impact, influence on me in the career path that I chose. So, I have to ask then from Atlantic City, how old were you when that was going on? And then, how did you end up in Iowa? Well, my dad was a lawyer prior to getting into law enforcement. He was in the Navy, was an attorney, didn't quite appreciate the divorces and the civil proceedings that were transpiring and wanted a greater challenge in life, just like I did. And so he joined the FBI at the time, which was their kinky focus was, of course, attorneys and also accountants. Mm -hmm. We moved to Atlantic City. I was there up until seventh grade, and then he retired from the FBI. And then he took a job as the chief legal instructor at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy at Camp Dodge in Johnston. So 
it gave me an opportunity there to still have that law enforcement contact once we even moved to Iowa. So mm -hmm. I went to one of the Catholic schools, St. Pius Church, and then also St. Pius School, and then went to Dowling High School. And while I was at Dowling, got a full ride um, scholarship to Iowa State University. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, got an accounting degree. And the re main reason why I chose accounting was because the FBI was hiring accountants and also attorneys. So my dad felt that was probably the best segue for employment opportunities with the FBI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just been in my blood the whole time. I was out at ILEA quite a bit. We'd shoot all the time out there at the range. He was a marksman in shooting, so he taught me how to do that, how to hunt. He just taught me how to be a good citizen. That was the main thing that I appreciated most about it. He's great influence, great mentor. You couldn't ask for a better dad. Very well respected amongst all of his peers in the FBI. And then he touched a lot of lives in local law enforcement because he taught criminal law to all the academy classes. And it's kind of funny how things go full circle now because I developed an expertise in homicide investigations through the DCI and also in interview and interrogation, which are two of the classes that I now teach at ILEA to the basic classes. So it's kind of amazing how things go full circle. That's great. Yeah, it is. And the last class my dad taught at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy was actually my academy class. He taught for the Department of Public Safety, mm -hmm. criminal law. So, and then he retired from ILEA and they went out east and lived on a mountain. So it was really kind of a neat life for him. Mm -hmm. Well, he sounds like a great guy. And your mom, too, must have been wonderful to be able to handle all that with his career. Six kids. Oh, my gosh. My mom was a sage. She really was. But I was an abused child growing up. I have five sisters. I was the only boy. So you can imagine the chaos that transpired in the house and everything. They felt I got preferential treatment because all I did was play athletics when I was growing up. I mean, if there was a ball to be somewhere in the neighborhood, I was there with it. My mom and dad always knew where I was, either outside shooting baskets, playing baseball, basketball basketball, throwing the football around, so they never had any worries with me. And I'm sure your sisters would not agree that you were abused. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was kind of joking about it, but uh, they would say spoiled more than abused, I can guarantee you that. I have one brother who has just us three sisters, and yeah, he would agree with you on that. <laughs> so you mentioned going to Iowa State, and mm -hmm. I know that you played football, you were a cyclone. Yes. So go Cyclones. Thank and you. And I had read when I was doing a little bit of research on you that you actually went into professional football or you were drafted but that path didn't open up for you or right. how did that go and, and well, how do you think your life would have been different if you'd gone left instead of right? It was funny. Got done with football at Iowa State, graduated with my accounting degree and then thought, you know what, hey, let's give pro football a try. Denver Broncos contacted me, went out there and tried out. And the thing that that opportunity gave me was the ability to compare my talents, my skill sets, my abilities to all of those who are actually in the professional football mm -hmm. conference. And so I tried out with the Denver Broncos, had a great time, it was a great learning experience. They were starting the United States Football League at that time. And so they had the Chicago Fire, which was kind of like a sub-organization owned by the Denver Broncos. So myself and Tim Cagle, who was a quarterback for Notre Dame, were selected to be the quarterbacks for the Chicago Fire. And so we met with the coaching staff, and 
Tim was like, we became good friends, and Tim's like, hey, I'm going to give it a shot. And I told Tim, I'm not. I'm going home, man. I'm, I'm done. I need to start my professional life. It's time to move on. It was mm -hmm. a great time, and it was a great influence in my life. And I can't tell you how important it was. It played a role in who and what I am today. Really? Having played athletics, having played football at Iowa State, and having had that opportunity. And then told Tim, he goes, well, he goes, I'm going to go and give it a shot. And then he goes, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to go to law school at Notre Dame, which ultimately did because he called me up after about two weeks and he said, you made the right decision. <laughs> he goes, I'm going, to, I'm going to hang in here. And then he goes, after the season, I'm done. I'm going to enroll in law school at Notre Dame. So mm -hmm. and the funny thing about it is that I told you how important athletics was to me. Mm -hmm. But the thing about it is that I never look back and wish. I always look ahead and know what the possibilities are and what I want to accomplish in my mission in life. Very focused, uh, I think of that for my dad. And so when it was done, it was done for me. Mm -hmm. And I never had any regrets at all. And I'm very proud of what I accomplished. I'm very proud of what our team accomplished that I played on. But the impact that it had on my life was so profound. And it's, on, it's profound for all college athletes. The educational component was extremely important to me, but more than that was my leadership development, my mm -hmm. confidence, and my communication capabilities. I was, seriously, you have no idea, I was a total introvert when I was growing up in high school. My sisters would do all the talking at <laughs> dinner table. In fact, they stopped one day and they had an intervention and they said, you've got to talk. And I said, well, I never get an opportunity. There's five girls around the table. So it was kind of a humorous moment for us, but that's one of the things that playing quarterback did. Being able to look people in the eye and say, hey, we're committed to a common goal and we're going to achieve that and then to find success. I mean, it's very rewarding, extremely rewarding. And it's that esprit de corps, that teamwork, that I want to carry on in my life, and that's what law enforcement's afforded me. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that teamwork and working with the team and motivating a team, mm -hmm. those lessons you've used a lot in your jobs, I'm sure. You know what, the culture that I established here at the Waukee Police Department is strictly about teamwork. Everything, we call them team members, you're like the captain of the team, you're that leader, you're the quarterback. I mean, they're all references to athletics because athletics parallels life in so many things. And it teaches you the fact that how to handle adversity because the way we handle adversity defines who and what we are and what we're going to accomplish in life. And so when you face adversity, I, re I tell everybody here at the police department, adversity, they're more of a challenge, they're more of an opportunity. And it's how you handle those, recognize that you overcome the barriers to success, and then you find the ability to complete the mission. Take pride in that. And that's what we're about here. You have to be innovative in your thought process. You have to be disciplined. You have to be focused. But the thing is, there's a lot of opportunities, not issues, a lot of challenges that we face here. And we're going to overcome those, and we're going to find success. So yeah, that team concept permeates directly through my leadership philosophy and the culture that's existed here when I was at the DCI and then also at the Waukee Police Department. They bought into it, they love it, and it's extremely rewarding for them. So a lot of challenges between the shifts and everything. They compare stats, they compare oh, yeah. arrests, contacts with the violators. So a lot of joking going on between the two, but they take great pride in what they accomplish each day. Mm -hmm. You left football. Yep. And then did you go straight from there to Department of Public Safety or where did you go after that? Got done with football, mm -hmm. and then before I had left, John Ruan used to be, or when he was alive, was a 
great supporter of, well, he was a great supporter of Iowa State. He was also a good supporter of mine, too. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that football allowed me to do in success that I had there at Iowa State was it provided name recognition, and then it opened a lot of doors for me, and it introduced me to a lot of people that normally I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet, and John Ruan was one of them. And so he had talked to me about the fact that when I got done with football, I don't know, maybe he saw something in me that he goes, I want you part of my team. And so he goes, when you get done, you give me a call. He says, there'll be a job waiting for you. So got done with football, and it was that safety net that I had there, and I think that's kind of what drew me back to the conclusion that, hey, my football career is over. I need to get back, and I need to start looking to the future and starting my professional career. I called him up, and I said, sir, I don't want to hold you in anything. He says, what do you mean? He says, start Monday. It was one of those conversations. Like, he was really excited. and It was an amazing conversation. And then when I told him, I was there for about a year in the accounting, in the uh, internal audit department, and so I wanted to meet with him personally and tell him that I was leaving Bankers Trust to move on to the Department of Public Safety because they had called me up and said, hey, are you interested in a position here? So I went through the application process there, and then they offered me a position. They hired, there was 1,500 applicants. They only hired two of us for the DCI wow. that year. Yeah, it was really challenging, but it was rewarding too. So I met with John Ruan. He and Larry Miller, were, which was John Ruan's right-hand man at the time, and he, he sits me down and he says, so you're leaving me for law enforcement? And he's like, so he lectures me about, he goes, he had big plans for me and <laughs> this future that he had envisioned for me. Your life away, well, that's about what he was saying. <laughs> he really wanted to do this. And he pulls out pictures of the airplane that he had. And he goes, what color is the plane? And I go, cardinal and gold. He goes, cyclones. That's exactly right. He goes, it's painted that way for a reason, and you're here for a reason. He goes, not only because of your affiliation with Iowa State, but because of the individual that you are. And we recognize that potential. And I told him that this was a dream, and it was a calling of mine. And he understood that. He knew about my dad and everything and the importance and the role because we'd had several conversations. So, But that was kind of what happened there. So I was in banking for about a year and then joined the Department of Public Safety and went to their basic academy in June of 1983. Seemed like a lifetime ago. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a fascinating story. If you stayed with Ruan, you could have had a whole fleet of planes by now. <laughs> oh, you know what? I get back to kind of like my college career and with football. I'm ready to move on. The yeah. pro tryout. I'm ready to move on. And then Bankers Trust hey, you know what, I recognize the potential, but money wasn't what drives this train inside me. Yeah. And it's that passion to make a difference in people's lives, to be that positive influence on who and what they are. And that's the opportunity. And then that esprit de corps, that teamwork, you don't find that in any other profession, but you find it here in law enforcement. You'll find it in the military somewhat, but really it's very profound inside local law enforcement and so and that sense of family oh man I'll tell mm -hmm. you what the brotherhood somebody's got your back mm -hmm. and you know that all the time mm -hmm. so yeah so that was really what I wanted to do and like I told you when I make a decision I don't look back I don't regret anything I make the best of every opportunity that's afforded to me and I'll tell you I've been blessed in my life with so many different things not only athletically academically but employment opportunities such as the Department of Public Safety and now with the Waukee Police Department. So you started with public safety and you started as an agent. I did, yes. 
fill me in on your career track there and sure how that led to you being the director of dci yeah it's interesting i went through the basic academy and there was a lot of uh, notoriety about it i should say there was a lot of coverage from the media they were kind of sitting there football player from Iowa State going to the Department of Public Safety and everything. So when I got done with the academy, you had options there to choose where you wanted to live and then really what assignment you wanted, whether it was narcotics investigations, white-collar crime, or homicide investigations, they call it general crime. And so I'm like, easy choice. I want to go up to Clear Lake, Iowa, live on a lake, and I want to work narcotics investigations because they, they wear jeans, they could grow long hair and everything, you know, and they had all the cool toys and everything. And the general cream, all they do is they wear suits and work dead people. <laughs> so it, wasn't, it was an easy choice for me. So I go in there, I submit my form, and they look at me and they go, really? You want to work undercover? And I go, oh, yeah, this would be fun. they like, <laughs> like, you're very intelligent. We recognize your nativity, and that is your face has been on every newspaper in Iowa for the several years of playing football at Iowa State. The media has covered the fact that you're at the DPS Academy and now a police officer. He goes, how effective are you going to be? And I go, can I have that form back? You know? And they go, we've already got you assigned to Des Moines working general crime investigations. So I spent approximately 20 years, thought that my accounting degree would come in extremely handy working white-collar crime, and it did come in extremely handy. All I did was count dead bodies. And became extremely good at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, really good at it. And to the point where I developed an expertise in interview and interrogation. There's a long story as to the reason why I did that. Someday maybe I'll tell you, but it's, it's really a neat thing about how the paths we take in life and how cases can impact us and influence us mm -hmm. in the decisions that we make and the direction that we go. And I had Absolutely. one specific case that did that to me, which caused me to develop this interview and interrogation expertise. I loved touching people's lives and then helping them at the moment when they were in their greatest despair. And the job that I had as an agent with the DCI was the most rewarding job any law enforcement officer could ever have. I mean, we did things the right way, never compromised our honesty and integrity, and the mission was always the focal point for what we wanted to do, and that was to hold people accountable for the crimes that they committed and along the way to help people out. And uh, we did that, and we did it very well. So for 20 years, worked homicides, and then some people must have recognized I had some leadership capabilities because I had no vision of ever getting promoted. I loved what I was doing. And so they came to me and said, no, you're being promoted. And so I took over Zone 1, and as that's the central part of Iowa for, and it goes down to the Missouri border, and all the counties associated with it. So we had a team of eight members, eight agents assigned to homicide and other criminal investigations. And was then, in after three years, got promoted to assistant director. And I was in charge of field operations. So you had missing persons, and then you also had general criminal cases. And then you had your cyber crime, which we started when I was the assistant director there. So it was really extremely rewarding because now I was in charge of all criminal investigations and then I had the influence over in what direction we were proceeding, talking about setting up policies, procedures for officer-involved shootings, for the cybercrime investigations, missing persons. It was really rewarding for me to allow and have that influence and direction and mentor and coach a lot of the young SACs as they were developing their leadership capabilities. Mm -hmm. And then after three years of that, you think that you know, my career just kind of escalated 
and then became director of the DCI. And then at that point in time, you take on the criminal crime lab, you take on gaming, and then you take on support services, which is the criminal history section, and then you take on field operations, which is all the criminal investigations, 260 employees, $30 million budget. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I wasn't home a lot. And consequently, my wife did a phenomenal job of raising our kids and having that influence on them. Fortunately, she's just a go-getter. And the funny part about it is she had a professional life, too. She was the chief information officer for the Department of Public Defense for the state. Oh, wow. So you can imagine the stress that was in her life, and she had to raise our four kids. And so our lives were kind of like we'd meet at night exhausted saying how was your day because when we came home we were taking the kids here and there and in between my phone is ringing off the hook with information and requests and things like that mm -hmm. so yeah that was it I mean uh, I can't think of a better career path and it topped off by being director of the DCI so it was just fun great ride so you mentioned you had a case that kind of changed your life and uh, mm -hmm encouraged you to get into the interrogation techniques and honing those skills. Yep. Can you talk about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't want to bore you with stories or anything oh, like, that. Me with anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what happened is I was actually on the DCI for about a year and it was in 1984, I believe, Boone County had a homicide and it involved the Sons of Silence. And while we were there working the case, I was just an assisting agent. I don't even know what's going on really and how to do anything. Here I am, a kid from Dowling High School, played football at Iowa State. I lived a, to be honest with you, pure life. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, never have. And I didn't realize evil existed the way it did. Mm -hmm. And so there was a guy by the name of Ron Gruber who was an executioner for the Sons of Silence. And he was at a party. And he went ahead and killed Penny White so he wanted to have sex with her. And she, her boyfriend was a prospect in the biking world at that time. And it's still true today. If you're a prospect, your wife or your girlfriend, that's the property of the club. And anybody can have sex with them that they want. Well, Tracy Lee, his nickname was Flat. You know, he was in love with Penny. And they were going to get me married. And Ron Gruber wanted her. And Tracy didn't want to give her up. And she didn't want to have sex with him. Well, ultimately, the party dwindled down that night. Everybody left. And... It left Ron Gruber and Penny Weitzel, who was the victim, and then also a guy by the name of Nick Hirsch, who nicknamed Nick the Knife. He had stabbed a guy like 30-some times and didn't kill him, but he was out of prison now. And so ultimately, Gruber and, and uh, Nick Hirsch leave, and the next morning, Penny is found deceased at that residence where the party was. And she'd been shot in the back of the head and then once to the left of the temple. And the shotgun was broken open. It was laid down right in front of her on the floor. There was a rope there that was used as a ligature around her neck. And then um, the shotgun shells were there. So it was a manipulated crime scene. It was somebody that was very confident in who and what they were. They weren't worried about being caught. They weren't worried about the ramifications of their act. It was just a defiant picture when you walked in that room of what you saw. And so not having worked many homicides and not really ever having talked to anybody, they assigned me to talk to Ron Gruber. And I'm like, I don't know anything about talking to people, interview and interrogation. I went through the academy and had a class. I'm still learning how to be an officer. You know, I'm on my FTO program. They said, no, you're athletic. Because he was on roids at the time, working out in the gym. And I work out every day. And he's like, you guys got a lot in common. I'm like, yeah, he's a killer. And I'm like the kid from Dowling High School. How would I have anything in common? They go, well, you just talk to him. So I went in there. 
And I talked to him for about 10 minutes, and he goes, whoa, stop. He goes, you know what? He says, you're an embarrassment to your organization. You're an embarrassment to yourself. And he goes, you're not worthy to be in the same room with Ron Gruber. And I stopped, and he goes, he goes, when you grow up to be, he goes, what do you become, like a big agent or something someday? He says, when you think you're worthy to come back here with the Ron Gruber, he said, then and only then will I talk to you. But for now, get out of my face. Get out of this room. Wow. And he goes, am I under arrest? I said, no. He said, then I'm out of here. And he challenged me. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about John Quinn is you never challenge John Quinn because I'm going to meet that challenge. And so I was really, I was upset. I was upset with my organization for putting me in a position to fail because I'd never been in that position before because the coaches, all that I had, prepared me for whatever obstacle in life I was going to face, and they prepared me for success. The DCI did not do that. And so when I got done, I was mad at them, and I was mad at myself because I didn't prepare myself for it. So I took on his challenge. And ultimately, I started going to every interview and interrogation class that was available. And I kept Ron Gruber in, my, in mind. Mm-hmm. And so with that said, I'd go to those classes, those seminars. Some of them I paid for myself. Some of them the state paid for. I'd come home and I'd tell my wife, let's perfect this. So she'd sit down with me. She'd be Ron Gruber, and I'd go right at her, you know, interrogating her and stuff, perfecting the methods, you know, on how to do it so that one day if I ever did meet Ron Gruber again and had the opportunity to talk to him, to interrogate him, that I would be, that he would be fearful of me because of the fact of who and what I'd become and how proficient I'd been at interviewing and interrogation. In fact, I came home from one class, and my wife looks at me, and she goes, do I have to be Ron Gruber again? I said, well, yeah, you can't be the good guy. So we just joked around and stuff like that. She's been a great partner of mine in life. I've been blessed with her and the kids and everything. So ultimately, the case agent for that um, homicide, the Whitesell homicide, retired. I asked for the case. Tom Miller from the AG's office accepted the challenge of working with me to accomplish the goal of going after Ron Gruber, who was still in the Sons of Silence, who was down in Paducah, Kentucky, and uh, I was following him, and he had just killed another individual down there. He said that they were playing Russian roulette, him and another member of the Sons of Silence. Um, Unfortunately, that individual lost, according to Ron. They never charged him for the crime. And so I came up with a way to get back at the Sons of Silence in that core chapter, and then also Ron Gruber. We started taking him down for tax evasion, drug stamp, all sorts of things like that, throwing them in jail. And ultimately, we got Tom Norman, who was the really the accountant for the Sons of Silence, and we got him jammed up. And I knew that Tom and Ron were best friends, and that Ron had told Tom about it. And I just told Tom, I said, hey, you're going to prison. I said, and you're going to a bad prison, too. I said, if you ever want to talk to me, I'm more than willing to listen. And so ultimately he got to his destination and he called me immediately and said, I want to talk to you. There was a few other adjectives he threw in there too. He wasn't real happy to talk to me, but he knew if he wanted to survive down there, he'd better get out of there. And so he called me up, we flew down, myself and Ron Fair, and then he told me everything about it. And then ultimately we got the first degree murder warrant for Ron. He was in Paducah, Kentucky, jammed up and told the warden, don't tell him who's coming. So I walked into the room Okay, this is the culmination of 12 years. This is my focus for 12 years to put him in jail. And I'm also working a multitude of other homicides, too. And I'd work this piece by piece. And then I walked in the room, and do you think he recognized me? I'm going to say no. No, I'm going to say yes. I think he recognized you. Well, he was sitting in the room. I walked in the room. In his eyes, I knew. He knew exactly who I was. 
and uh, his heart just dropped to the floor. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Gruber, how are you? And he looked at me and he said, Agent Quinn, how are you? And he goes, and his next comment to me was, I've been fearful of this day ever since I met you. He goes, when I challenged you that day in Boone, he goes, I looked in your eyes and I knew I was making the biggest mistake of my life. Wow. Yeah. And so that's who I'd become. I mean, I was that confident in who and what I was. I was that confident in handling people like him and anybody that I ran into that would commit a crime such as murder or anything else. And so I said, uh, I've been waiting 12 years to talk to you. You told me and you challenged me. He goes, I know exactly what I told you. And he just looked at me and said, I want nothing to do with you. He goes, I know about you. I know who and what you are. And he goes, I want an attorney. I don't want to talk to you. And I never will. And I said, are you sure? I said, I've waited 12 years for this opportunity. And, <laughs> yeah. and you're going to shut me down like that. So I never did get a chance to talk to him, but uh, he pled guilty to second-degree murder. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a conclusion of a case. But it's amazing how things in life impact who and what you are and, and the course and the direction that you go in. Yes. And so it was because of the success that I had in criminal investigations, the organization of the leadership that I was able to provide to my teams as we took on homicide investigations. It was all those things that were put together that allowed me to be successful at that job. And uh, that's the reason why it was so rewarding. So I'm going to guess that that was probably your most satisfying case to work, even though you didn't get to question him at the end, being able to put him away? No. No? Not at all. So what was your most satisfying case? Well, I had the dubious that? honor and uh, privilege to work Iowa's only documented serial murder, and that was Don Piper. Okay, in West so, Des Moines. Yeah, in West Des Moines. Mm -hmm. And so, ultimately, it was funny because it was almost a career ender for me because of the leadership that was at the DCI at the time because I was just an agent and I took on that challenge. I didn't work his first homicide, and that was over at, uh, it was at the Holiday Inn in West Des Moines. Mm -hmm. I was working another double homicide attempted murder in Dallas County out here, in fact, just west of Waukee. And so there was another agent that was involved in that, and then it went unsolved, and it was the Pat Lang case. Mm -hmm. And so with that, I told him, I said, hey, I'll drop everything and I'll come over and help you out with this case because anytime you have a hotel motel murder, they're very difficult. And so we had two inexperienced, an agent had really never worked a homicide before. And then we had a, a local law enforcement member of West Des Moines, Randy Honeyfeld, mm -hmm. who's passed now that had never worked really a homicide. Mm -hmm. And then to convolute that, it's at a hotel motel. So unless you have great experience and leadership capability, those things can get beyond the capabilities of people who are inexperienced. Unfortunately for us, the DCI didn't provide the leadership that was necessary for those guys to be successful. It was because of the Zone 1 supervisor. And uh, he and I didn't see eye to eye. And uh, so consequently, they didn't assign me to that case. But ultimately, I was able to take on the lead for that formulated task force. And we took Don Piper down. It was the most fun case. I've ever worked. It really was. That actually, he was convicted of the, in, during the first trial, I think that was my second week on the job at West Des Moines. At um, Pat Lang's? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, it was just fun. There was mistrials in it and everything because of the DNA. And the other thing too was that the thing that 
caused that case to be so special. Not only was it the fact that it was only Iowa's first serial murderer and he'd killed five women, but the fact that it was the Langs, his first victim in Iowa, Pat Lang. It was Bob and Joanne Lang that I got to know. And the phone call to them to tell them, because they thought that the whole case had gone unsolved and would never be resolved. When I called them up and said, hey, I want to meet with you because I want to talk to you about your daughter's death and I want to talk to you about the suspect that we have. And I promised them when I met them that we were going to solve that case. And we did. And I developed a friendship with them. And it was rewarding in so many aspects. But the main thing was it was meeting them and seeing the difference it made in their life to have a resolution to something where there were questions. How many years did that take from her death to his arrest? Well, it was, I think, 93 was Pat's death. And then it happened in 98 is when the arrest of Don transpired. And then he was convicted in 2001. Was it 2001? It could have been. I don't even remember. I know that he was convicted of Pat's death, and then he was then tried subsequently for Zurieta Sakonovic's death. That was over at the Budgetel, which was just pretty much kitty corner across. Maybe it was his second conviction in 2001. I think it was the second. Yeah, his great career, man. It was, I mean, that's stuff that you write books about. I mean, the things that we did, it was, yeah. just, it was just fun. And with him, it was extremely fun and rewarding, too. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about that investigation. Yeah, this one story, I get this call. So Don worked for Accurate Mechanical, and he's out and about, and he drove this van. And that's the reason why he had such freedom, because the fact that he had no accountability, and he was killing these women during the day. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching at ILEA while we're working the homicide, and I get a call, and my phone rings, and they go, and it's Tom Boyd from West Des Moines PD, and he's like, hey, John, you got to get out of here. And I go, I'm teaching. He goes, no, you need to get here. I go, where are you at? He goes, we're over at St. Pius Church, and he says, Piper's here. And I'm like, I didn't even stop. I just bolted. I didn't even tell anybody I was leaving. Well, my two sons were at St. Pius School, and Piper was there at St. Pius Church, which is right next to each other. And so we found out that he was working on the boiler system there at the school. Well, you wouldn't believe how many law enforcement officers are there all of a sudden because they know my kids go there, so they're thinking that Don's targeting my kids. Yeah. And at the time, my son had a blue cast on, so he stood out like a sore thumb. And uh, so I fly over there, and they've got snipers on them. <laughs> they've got everything out ready to take him down. And in fact, he crosses that line and goes over to the school or anything like that. So we had to notify course St. Pius we had to notify the school and it was it was one of those interesting stories that transpires you know mm -hmm. and stuff like that mm -hmm. so. so that was your most satisfying case yeah what is and probably still is in your mind a case that you were never able to resolve or that still stays with you is haunting you do you have anything like that well here's the beauty of me I don't have any unsolved homicides that I was the lead of for the DCI. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that is you amazing. You were 20 years. That is amazing. It is. 20 years. When I was case agent, there wasn't a single case that I worked that I was in charge of that went unsolved. Now, I worked a lot of cases. Not a lot. I said I worked several that were unsolved, but none of them that I was in charge of. I was mm -hmm. just kind of, kind of a role player inside the leadership team but not case agents. So mm -hmm. I always say it, I'd rather be lucky than good. And if you're good, that's even all the better. 
So I was very fortunate about that. Yeah, that yeah, is no one saw amazing statistic. Like, it really is. It's something that I take great pride in. It really is. So. And when I was analyst with West Des Moines and we were working the Ashley Oakland mm -hmm. homicide, I remember we had a couple of DCI agents that were assigned to us for a short period of time to help with the investigation. And I do remember one day, a couple of weeks into the work, and you came out and checked in on us. And I still remember that little pep talk. Was that something that you did a lot with the different local cases and um, was that kind of your role and does that kind of go back to the quarterback of the team and mm -hmm. the motivation and the team and yeah that's who and what I am it's all about people I mean that's mm -hmm. the, the greatest resource in any organization is the people and you've got to treat them with the respect that they deserve and everybody there the West Wayne PD I have the highest regard for them I've developed so many relationships over there and that I just I still hold today very dearly but those cases people have People don't realize the stress that's induced and the time and resource commitment that's necessary to bring those things to a successful resolution. And so I always took the time to go over there, especially anything that had duration to it, to go out there and to motivate people to tell them no, that they're appreciated. The, effort, the sacrifice that they're making away from their families is very much appreciated. And the fact that they're protecting their community and the job that they're doing and how important it is. And so, to me, those are the things that I felt were necessary to propel people to let them know that they were appreciated, and then maybe even to motivate them to finding that core piece of success there. It was greatly appreciated. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Was it a hard decision for you to retire from the state? I loved being a part of the DCI. I loved being in every aspect of it, but my last two years there at the DCI, the Department of Public Safety took a turn in a different direction. And I didn't agree with the leadership, and I didn't agree with the direction. One thing about John Quinn is that if you don't want the truth, don't ask me. And if you don't want my opinion, don't ask me. Because I don't care who you are, I'm going to tell you if you ask me. And so there were changes that were made in the organizational structure of the department which I felt were totally unnecessary and detrimental to the success of some of the divisions there. And I've seen that detriment now in who and what they are and where they're going. And so consequently with that and the changes that were implemented and the leadership that had taken over, it was a point in my career that I knew it was time for me to go. And so when the opportunity afforded, when I was afforded that opportunity to leave at uh, being 55 and eligible for retirement, I seized that moment immediately. And so with that, as one chapter ends, a new one begins. And it's a funny story about that. When I was leaving the DCI, my wife's like, she'd retired six months before I was going to. And she sat me down and she goes, so you're going to retire in six months, huh? And I go, oh, God, this is great, honey. And we spend every day together and every moment together, our dreams coming true, you know? She looked and at she me. She said, I don't think so. <laughs> she goes, she goes, she goes um, newsflash, no. <laughs> she goes, you are just like way too hyper. We'd be divorced in two months. She goes, I didn't even think it would take two months. I'm going to give you two weeks. <laughs> and so, because the longest vacation I ever took was a week at the DCI. That was it ever in my life. So and the phone would ring the whole time I was on vacation and stuff. So I'm that type A personality. I've got to be involved in everything. You know, my hair isn't on fire and 
I'm not going 180 miles an hour, then I'm not happy. I'm just kind of fidgety. I don't know how to relax. Never have. I've got to be doing something. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. My battery just goes, and then at night, about 10 o'clock at night, my battery's empty. I just collapse. I'm in bed. I don't sleep, but I just collapse. And so, getting back to that, she told me, she goes, so, she goes, get a job. And then she goes, get a good paying job, too. Is <laughs> there anything else? Don't be the Walmart reader. <laughs> That's exactly right. She's always been a great sounding board for me. She knows me better than anybody. And so I, she goes, let's start looking now. So I looked at some positions, and what could I do? What do you do with every, somebody that's been director? She of the can't business? be a normal person. No, absolutely not. And I've not done anything normal my whole life. Most of the stuff, I can't tell people what I did mm -hmm. anyway. And so I thought, you know, chief of police doesn't sound bad. So I applied at Norwalk, and they had a residency requirement. And I kept telling them, I go, hey, is there a residency requirement? I don't worry about it. Stay in the process. And I'm like, mm, you don't understand. I'm not moving because I've moved my wife too much, you know, already. They're like, well, yeah, there is, but we'll talk about that. And I said, no. I said, I'm going to go ahead and pull my application, and I appreciate everything totally, consideration for the job. But... I've got to make this sacrifice for my wife. And so it wasn't even two weeks later that Larry Phillips, who was the former chief here, called me up and he said, hey, I'm retiring. And he goes, and I want you to apply. And he, you got a guy that's a legend here at Waukee, 34 years part of this department. He built the existing foundation for the future. And to have somebody call you up and say that and, and then have kind of coach and mentor you so that your transition here is seamless it was very much appreciated. There was a dubious process that you had to go through to get the job, of course. And uh, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I did, totally. They had these panels that you had to talk to, and my wife's like, isn't that stressful? And I go, heck no, this is fun. <laughs> and it was so funny, it was when I was meeting with the mayor, he talked about my resume and my experiences and the talents, and I said, well, thank you so much. He goes, well, don't thank me. He says, you're the one that's built your, your reputation. You're the one that's built this foundation that we appreciate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go, well, to be honest with you, I know you were interviewing me, but I was also interviewing each and every one of you as mayor, as city administrator, and all the department heads, because if this isn't a good fit for John Quinn, I'm not going to take it. Mm -hmm. But it's been phenomenal here. I love it here. This job is so rewarding, and the challenge was great, but the rewards are even greater. Mm -hmm. And I imagine with Waukee growing, the challenges will continue to grow. Oh, yeah. I mean... I could go on and on about <laughs> the challenges that we faced here <laughs> and the changes that we've made, but the one thing about it is that there's such talented people here at this department, and they've embraced every challenge that I presented to them as an opportunity, and it's been fun. So how did that transition from state to local government go for you? Well, you know what? It was funny because here I am sitting in a suit. I've never worn a uniform. And so when I was going through the panels, one of them panels was, of course, panel with the officers there. And I told him, I go, guys, if you're looking for somebody to come in here and put a uniform on and to run radar and make traffic stops, I said, you know what, you got the wrong guy here. I'm not the person for this job. But I told him, I go, if you want a leader here, if you want somebody that's going to prepare this department for the exponential growth that's going to transpire, if you want somebody that's going to prepare each and every one of you for a bright future, and to be successful and to have career development from an educational component, training component, equipment component, and staffing, I said, I'm your man. There's nobody else better at this than me. 
and I looked him in the eye. I said, if there's an issue here because of the fact I am worn in uniform, then you know what? Hey, you need to support somebody else. But if you want to choose somebody that's going to make a difference here, I'm the person. And so it came back unanimous that I was the selection. In fact, the night that I got done with all the panels, the mayor told me, he goes, hey, look, he says, uh, it'll take about two, three days. And he goes, uh, and we'll draw back two of the people that were in the process. And he goes, but if you get a call tonight from me, then that means that you've been eliminated. So it was my son's birthday. My wife and I went up to Iowa State, where I know it's crazy he went to Iowa State, but <laughs> <laughs> so we're up there celebrating his birthday. My phone rings, and I noticed it was a walkie number, and I'm thinking, I told my wife I didn't get the job. Felt really good about it and thought I had a good chance. Uh-huh. And so the mayor's there. I go, hey, sir, how you doing? And he goes, good, John. And you got a second? I go, yeah. And I go, hey, listen, I said, I, I appreciated the opportunity. It was a great experience for me. Um, it was a lot of fun. Good people out there. And you know, if you ever need anything from me, just let me know. And But I just appreciate you guys willing to let me participate in the program. <laughs> he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> he goes, I'm calling you to offer you the job. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so it was one of those things. Anyway, the transition's been seamless here. It really has. I, Tim Mormon, who was the city administrator, he gets it. And, in fact, he hired me and he said, I hired you because of the fact I don't know how to run a police department. I trust you. I believe in you. And he goes, and I look forward to a great relationship. And it's been that. In fact, he told me, he goes, hey, he goes, take six months, ease into the position. And he goes, find out what needs to be changed and how you want to do it. And he goes, and then we'll meet and we'll start making some changes slowly. So three days later, I came to him with a manual about three inches thick as to what was wrong here, what needed to be fixed, and how I was going to do it, and that it started today. He looked at me and he said, go for it. And he's been that support mechanism for me ever since I've had the job, and it's Mm -hmm. been a great relationship, a great partnership. I can't tell you how gratifying it is because the difference between state and local law enforcement is that when you work for the state of Iowa, especially the Division of Criminal Investigation or the Iowa State Patrol. We have relationships with local law enforcement. We're not invested inside the community. Right. The daily changes, the people. I mean, we bring calm to chaos and then we leave. And we don't see them maybe for years mm-hmm. until they need us again. And then our response is short in duration. It's very focused. And I've had a chance now to experience the other side of the fence. And the life here is great. And it is so much fun, so rewarding. Not so much in the casework that we do here. I tell everybody the difference between the Milwaukee Police Department and any other police department isn't the services we provide, but it's how we provide those services. That's what makes the difference. It's those relationships that you develop with the community. Absolutely. And I thought maybe, I, I told my wife, I go, with the changes I'm going to make, honey, I said, I'm going to be the shortest duration for a chief of police in the state of Iowa, or they're going to absolutely love me. <laughs> well, <laughs> going, still on, here. going on two and a half years. And I tell you what, I love seeing the fire in the eyes of the officers as they come to work and the culture that we've established here. It's not a beatdown thing, but a support thing. But they also know there's accountability on the back end of it. Mm-hmm. And so they've got a job to do, and they do it very well here. But that's the reason why I love being here at the Waukee Police Department, is being a part of people's lives and seeing them on a daily basis and that growth and change. Talking about the officers, and you've been in law enforcement since 1983? 83. You've seen a lot of changes in technology. Yep. And I know body cameras right now mm-hmm. 
are a big issue. Yes, they are. And Waukee has them? Yes, we do. Yes. So, and I've done a little bit of research into that, and I know there's good things and bad things, and but they're not the cure-all that, that a lot of people think they are. But what has your experience been with the body cameras in Waukee, and do you think overall it's a good thing for law enforcement and also some of the other technological developments that mm -hmm. would have been pie in the sky in 1983, how it's made policing better, worse? I'll talk about, first about body cameras since you brought that up, and then I'll talk about the other advances in technology and then actual other equipment that we've utilized or we utilize now on a daily basis that before was just, as you indicated, kind of a dream. Body cameras, okay, they are an accountability tool. That's what body cameras provide is accountability. It provides accountability for the officers and their interaction with our community members and it provides accountability for our community members as they interact with our officers because everything is documented. We all in law enforcement utilize in-car cameras and the problem is that you get outside the range of the focus of the lens and also possibly even the range of the microphone for the in-car camera and the communication was lost. When I started law enforcement in 1983, it was easy for an officer to get up on the stand and to tell what he observed, what he did, and then the justification for his actions, and it was accepted by the courts and wasn't questioned. That's not true today. And so it's been the most difficult last few years that I've ever been involved in in law enforcement because of the scrutiny that law enforcement's being played or being put in. And it's very challenging for these officers. It was important for the Waukee Police Department to have body cameras because I wanted to make sure that there was transparency in policing operations from the standpoint of professionalism that we exhibit on a daily basis as we encounter those people that believe in us, trust in us, and have confidence in us. And so it's the accountability of those cameras. Are they the answer to everything? They aren't. But one of the things that it does do is it lets the officer know when they engage the community that it's being recorded. And I tell them it's being recorded because it's for your protection, because I know the professionalism you're going to exhibit because I demand it and you know there's any deviation from policy procedure, you will not be employed here at the Waukee Police Department. They understand that and they accept that and they embrace it. There hasn't been one officer that's had pushback about the body cameras. And they've come, and in fact, here's, here's the thing, we actually had an instance where we were testing the body cameras, figuring out the relevance of them and the importance of it and then where, what role they would play in operations here. So we brought in a bunch of body cameras, testing them out, and we formulated committees. And the thing about what we do here at the Waukee Police Department is that I make the officers vested stakeholders. I set down the, the parameters for which the selection process was going to be made, but I told them, you'll choose the camera itself. So we found cameras that met the parameters, and then they tested them, and they are the ones that chose the body cameras. They can carry it anywhere they want, where it's most comfortable for them, because they're the ones wearing it. Why should I dictate to them where they wear it? But the beauty of the cameras and to show the relevance of it is that when we were testing the cameras, there was actually an employee of Waukee that one of the officers stopped 
and that employee, former employee, made false allegations against the officer, didn't know that the body camera was there on the officer. And when these allegations were levied, we pulled the video up from the body camera, and I got a hold of HR and I said, I've seen the video, and I don't agree with the comments that this individual's making and the allegations of unprofessionalism that are being levied against the officer. So I met with the HR director, they met with the employee, and they terminated the employee that day. Yeah. So everybody knows we carry them. And you'll be amazed when you watch the video, people actually look at the camera itself. Because on the screen itself, it shows what's being recorded. The other thing, too, is that it documents what transpires. We had a homicide, first homicide in 38 years. And the body cameras were rolling when the officers were engaging the victim's wife when the officer was given CPR to the victim and ultimately passed. It is some of the most unbelievable video I've ever seen. It looked like real TV, only you're there watching it and you could feel the emotion. You could feel as the officers were performing CPR. What a great tool to have. Now, will it have its drawbacks one day? I mean, to the point where it's going to document something that the officers do? Absolutely, but I hope it does because I want them to be accountable for what they do. If they deviate from policy, they act unprofessional, there needs to be discipline levied. Mm -hmm. So the body cameras, yeah, they're important. They really are. It's an important tool for the Milwaukee Police Department. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but I am saying it is something for, that we embrace here at Waukee. The officers recognize it. I don't think they'd go without them. And also then I wanted to ask you about changes in mm -hmm. how agencies cooperate with each other and information sharing and how that's changed over the years and if you especially saw a big change after 9-11 yeah, with information sharing. Information sharing has always been important. In fact, the DCI had its lean program. And I'm a member. I, know. I was a member. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great program. Tom Roxlow started that and it was a way to draw and eliminate the barriers between state government and then local law enforcement, sheriffs, and local police departments. Mm -hmm. And so they started a program that was extremely successful. And with that, it opened up a lot of doors of information sharing. And so with the Intel unit at the Department of Public Safety, specifically the DCI, but now they have their own division, Intel Division, it's played an important role, a resource that's available to all of local law enforcement. But here, where we are in the Waukee Police Department, we're all part of Westcom. Mm -hmm. communications and it's Urbandale Police Department, Clyde Police Department, West Des Moines, Norwalk and then Waukee and so we're just getting a brand new records management system and so with that we'll actually have accessibility to all the casework that is over along with our collaborative partners for Urbandale, Clyde, West Des Moines, Norwalk and so mm -hmm. it's, it's all about information sharing, it's about getting the information out to the officers in the street to ensure their safety, their welfare and that when they engage the community members that, hey, you know what, they're well informed as to who and what type of individuals they're encountering. The other thing, too, is that we have a policy for Westcom, and that is closest resource. So if there's an incident that happens in, let's say, hypothetically, one of our neighbors, Clive, and the closest resource is a walkie officer, they'll deploy the walkie officer into Clive to address the situation immediately to ensure the safety and welfare of the community members. And then when Clive can break free, then they'll come over and take over the case. So it's that sharing of resources. It's the sharing of information. 
I mean, that's technology and that's policing into the future. The jurisdictional boundaries are seamless and there's great collaboration amongst all levels of law enforcement, federal, state, county, and local PDs. And that's a great thing because I always used to say that when somebody's going down University Avenue to go break into cars, they're not going to say, well, I'm just going to stay on this side of University because it's West Des Moines. I'm not going to go the right. other side. I mean, they're all over, so we should be too. Yep, and we are. And it's neat to see, and the best part about it is that all the leaders here for law enforcement meet on a regular basis. Um, all the chiefs meet twice a month. And uh, we sit down, we talk, and we hash out any issues, and we look at really what the challenges are for the future, training opportunities, resource sharing, you name it. The chiefs are all very proactive in, in who and what we are and what we can do together because together we're so much stronger mm -hmm. and we can overcome any obstacle. Well, tell me about DNA because that's, oh that's what my daughter is interested in. She <laughs> had a hard time deciding between which track to take, so uh -huh. and the director of this program is retired FBI in his big case when I googled him was the hikers at Yosemite several years ago. Mm -hmm. That was his big case. So she was saying, I don't know whether to take crime scene investigation or the DNA track. And he told her, he goes, you can do both. Yeah. He goes, declare one and then take your electives in the other. So she's really excited about that. But she loves the DNA stuff. So DNA. Yes, DNA. Talk to me about DNA. Oh my gosh. It is the greatest, I would say, advancement in technology since fingerprinting when the FBI developed latent print identification and latent print of course means latent means unknown and so they got all their fingerprint files so whenever you get fingerprinted that's what the process is is for identification well DNA is the wave of the future and one of the important things about it is when we were working the Piper serial murder case they had a thing called RFLP, and it was at the just the infancy of DNA. And there was only really a few labs in the United States that were working the processing of DNA. Cellmark Diagnostics in the East Coast was one of those companies, and they used a process called RFLP. And so with it, the chemicals in it were carcinogenic. <laughs> and so, and it was expensive. So if you had to have a darn good idea as to who your suspect was, and then you could do a comparison from the unknown DNA sample that was taken from the victim's body, whether it was a sexual assault kit or whether it was from the crime scene. And so, lo and behold, unfortunate for Don Piper, it was the maturation of DNA that ultimately allowed us to hold him accountable for what he did because Initially, they had a DNA profile through RFLP, which was really non-discriminatory. And what I mean by that is when you got the results back, it would be like one in 200,000. I mean, it was just like, you know, it didn't eliminate didn't very many people and yeah. yeah, focus the scope of it. But as Don continued to kill, technology continued to advance, especially in the field of DNA. So then all of a sudden you get into polymers chain reaction. PCR, which was then up the identification. And so with that, you were getting into the millions. So one in 300 million or something like that would be that of the profile that was developed through the DNA process. And then all of a sudden comes STRs, which is short tandem repeats subsequently to that. Now, when you get into STRs, you're getting into a genetic fingerprint, like one in six billion. 
And so that was the development, the short-term development between RFLP and then PCR and then STR. And with that development, we started holding people accountable. And that's where you get all these cold cases coming from and the analysis of it through DNA. And there was a lot of grants through the DOJ to facilitate those and establish these cold case squads based upon DNA analysis so they don't only really focus on cases with DNA. And it's changed law enforcement because now they've got the CODIS system, which was a DNA data bank. And uh, it, it's amazing the cases that have been resolved because of DNA, a technology that many years ago they can only dream right. of. But the greatest thing now is touch DNA. And so the cellular material at the end of your fingers, as you touch something, they're able to amplify and replicate the cellular material to such a degree that it doesn't take much of a sample of mm -hmm. cellular material for them to replicate it and then formulate a profile that matches you. And it's amazing. When my daughter and I visited UC Davis and we were getting a tour of the building, they had uh, a big display of some of their graduate students had done a project where they were actually able to extract DNA from the skin, mm -hmm. touch DNA, after someone had showered. They mm -hmm. were still able to extract it with this vacuum procedure. Yeah. And just amazing stuff that they're doing. Yeah, it is technology. And they're getting into portable DNA kits where they can actually come back with a profile. They're trying to get it into hours as compared to wow. days now. So the advancements are still on the horizon. And it's just fascinating to see. But the problem is it's very resource and labor intensive and it's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, just along with, and we haven't even gotten into the cyber world either. And that is something that is extremely, extremely expensive because the technology changes on a daily basis. And then law enforcement's ability to, to drill into and garner that information. Cell phones are a key tool for law enforcement and our ability to draw the information from the hard drive from the cell phone because mm -hmm. you know kids today they can't live without their cell phone and their life is that cell phone and their life is on the cell phone mm -hmm. and so when you tap into the resources and the information on that cell phone holy smokes <laughs> it tells a lot about who and what that person is and it tells about where they've been and who they're communicating with so there's so many different aspects of technology that play an important role in law enforcement the problem is it takes money and it's not readily available. That's the reason why we have to rely upon the federal government and also the state government to be able to provide those resources to local law enforcement so that we can utilize that technology for resolution of important cases. Which kind of leads to one of the next questions I had was, okay, Chief Quinn, you have an mm -hmm. unlimited budget yep. for FY. 2017, what are you going to use it for? Well, I saw in your, the questions there, One, the first thing you want to talk about was the Department of Public Safety, and that's an easy one for them, and that's staffing. There's been such a reduction of troopers, reduction of agents through the Department of Public Safety because they haven't had the financial support there to allow for the FTEs to be filled. I mean, every time that they get a status quo budget, you're looking at a reduction just because of the inherent costs on an annualized basis. And so they have to give up FTEs to cover those increased costs. And so ultimately, it's resulted in what I truly believe are higher deaths on the highways because of the fact that there's not as many troopers out there holding people accountable, keeping the speeds down. 
I mean, visibility is a key to deterrent for really the deaths and the loss of life on those interstate highways. And it's an important thing that we get the people back out, get their butts in the cars and get them out and enforcing and assisting local law enforcement because everything that we do is driven by money and it's driven by people. And if the success of law enforcement is based upon law enforcement officers communicating with their constituency, the members of their communities, and in this case for the state, the citizens of the state of Iowa, they deserve that. They truly do. And I think they've been shorted over the last few years. Waukee, you know what? We have money for the training. We have money for the equipment. And we have money for technology. The one thing that we're building slowly is the most important one, and that's staffing. And so we here at Waukee are, we've been hiring two officers a year. And we're building up our capabilities to provide the public safety services that the members of this community deserve. And so that's a key focus for Administrator Mormon, the council, and the mayor. They are investing inside the Waukee Police Department at a heavy cost because we've increased training, we've increased and purchased just about every tool that these officers need to be successful and we've invested inside their training for the future for career development and then the professionalism that they display. But the most expensive one, of course, is the staffing. And they recognize that public safety is the cornerstone of any democratic society. And the one thing that sells houses here and is part of the exponential growth that we're experiencing in Waukee, First is the school district and the educational component. The second is people feel safe in their homes here. And the only way, and I keep telling this and the importance of it, the only way they're going to continue to feel that way is to go ahead and increase the staffing here at the police department. And they recognize that need and they're willing to invest inside of it. So I've submitted a five-year staffing plan for Administrator Mormon. We're going to share it with the council and I'm hoping that they'll garner or I'll garner the support to advance forward that initiative and I think we will. They recognize the value of it and the importance of it and it, uh, it's been a great partnership and I appreciate their support and everything that I've requested because to be honest with you I've justified every request I've made and they've supported those requests. I think I'll wrap it up then kind of go from what you just said about staffing and talk about some of the challenges probably not only for Waukee, but police departments as a whole, your challenges in recruiting and retention and just to maintain that staffing level and how that's changed over the years. Well, it's changed over the years. It's changed dramatically or just in the last few years just because of all the issues that law enforcement is facing in the scrutiny because of issues like Ferguson and all the other things that have transpired, Minnesota and everywhere, Maryland. I mean, I could go on and on. And I'm not saying that law enforcement is totally responsible for it, but what I am saying is that there has to be a way for us to address the social unrest inside this country and not blame law enforcement for the issues that we're facing because to be honest with you, when there's an issue at hand, who's the first person that they call is law enforcement to resolve that? 
they recognize the fact that we play an important role in every community and we have a job responsibility that isn't easy and there is heavy criticism now because of what is transpiring inside this country and they're utilizing the criticism of law enforcement as a tool as a mechanism to get that message out there and it's difficult when you're trying to hire good people as a result of that because it plays an important influence on their decision making as to what career path they're going to undertake and so when a person becomes a target just because they're are wearing a uniform I mean we've reached a, a pinnacle in society right now where we have to make changes law enforcement through our community policing operations we have outreach to the community we've established the relationships some people sit there and say hey that's only cosmetic in nature and you're not dealing with the true issues at hand well you know what you're right maybe it is cosmetic but it's the only outreach that I know that we can establish the relationships and then open the doors for communication to resolve those issues and they're important issues that are at hand and law enforcement is taking the lead role in trying to address those so it does play an important part as an important influence when you're trying to get minority members to join the profession of law enforcement and it's difficult right now number one it's difficult because this is a predominantly caucasian state i mean you look at the statistics 94 percent i think is like is it's caucasians and when you look at that secondarily in waukee if i go down the demographics of it african americans are the smallest minority population of waukee so when we're trying to hire minorities here hispanics it's difficult to find those individuals that want to get into the profession and then you have to get into the qualification not only both the physical but the academic so it's extremely challenging for every law enforcement department I know we as chiefs meet we discuss these issues we talk about them we talk about the importance and what we can do to make a difference we've had the outreach to the minority members have had to the organizations and we're trying as hard as we can to address it to make sure that what's happened in Ferguson, what's happened in Minnesota, what's happened in Maryland and all over the United States, down even in uh, Dallas and places like that, doesn't happen here. And um, I feel very confident about that because there is communication that exists, the relationships are built, and the chiefs care about really the profession, the reputation, the honor, and the privilege that we feel being a member of this profession so we're doing everything we can to mitigate that but who knows what the future holds but recruitment is difficult but I'll tell you to show you how difficult it is we have two positions that we hire from we've had over a hundred applicants each time for the positions that we've had and it uh, we get we've gotten great quality applicants and it's been a lot of fun getting to meet them and to infuse them into the brotherhood here at Waukee and the culture that exists and so for us we have to find the round peg in the round hole and uh, we found that I mean we're looking for a specific type of individual to join our team and uh, it's important that we find the right personality but fortunately for us there's a lot of well-educated extremely viable candidates that are available so we're very fortunate here
Yeah, that's good to hear. Well, I think we'll wrap it up then. I just want to say again, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Well, I appreciate that. I apologize for the kind of like the running on and telling stories oh, and no, stuff. Oh, no, I loved it. But it was, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you and getting to see you again. And then I wish everybody the very best. I think we could have done another hour. Oh, my gosh, yeah. My wife's like, you've got to write a book. And I'm like, nobody wants to hear these old war stories oh, and stuff okay. like that. Love that. But it's fun.